Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Voices of Nature is dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. In today's episode, we're speaking with Anastasia Koo, the Chief of Staff and Chief Marketing Officer of Conservation International. In that role, Anastasia leads her team as a purpose-driven strategist working to create social, cultural, and organizational change. As we'll discuss today, Anastasia has developed and led communications campaigns on complex and challenging issues, ranging from climate change to LGBTQ equality. In this episode, we'll explore a topic we've only briefly touched on in previous episodes, the intersection of communications and marketing efforts to protect nature, and a new topic, the role of large NGOs like Conservation International in the global effort to address the many challenges facing nature. Anastasia, welcome to Voices of Nature. Bob, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm really thrilled to be here. So, Anastasia, I've heard some of the interviews you've done. Uh, needless to say, you're a you're a very compelling guest. So we're really excited to have you on. But you you know, it's clear in these interviews that you forged a, this really great career in developing communications campaigns to to challenging and, and controversial issues like climate change and, as I said before, LGBTQ equality. Just tell us a little bit about your background, some of your work around these campaigns, and, and what brought you to Conservation International. Well, thank you, Bob, for the opportunity. So when I was about eight years old, we had a knock on the door, and it was a Greenpeace canvasser. I come knocking door to door and asking for you know, funding to help support the work. My dad invited the canvasser in, had them sit down, you know, got them some something to drink and asked him to tell us about his work. I remember sitting with my dad and, you know, this young man was explaining sort of the, you know, environmental issues and consequences and the work that the organization was doing to raise awareness and confront this, I remember thinking, I want to do that. And I was fortunate to, you know, have parents that encouraged us to follow their passions. And I guess it was about 15, 18 years later, I landed at Greenpeace and worked there for six years on their creative communications team. So I ran large corporate campaigns, campaigns around toxics and genetically engineered plants and ingredients, and a whole host of things. And then made the transition to work on uh, LGBTQ equality at the Human Rights Campaign, which is the United States' largest organization dedicated to LGBTQ equality. And at the time, it was 2005, and it was on the heels of a very controversial election in this country where that community was, you know, was essentially routinely and unfairly blamed for the loss of the presidential election. So I, I walked into, you know, what was a, just a really challenging moment in the organization and movement's history, um, but also the country's. And the first campaign that I ever ran 
was when the Republicans in Congress tried to add a constitutional amendment to banning same-sex marriage. And so that was the first campaign, 2005. They felt the wind was at their back in terms of helping to advance, you know, anti-equality efforts. And my job was essentially to change hearts and minds of leaders, of politicians, of corporate leaders, to everyday Americans, to the side of equality. And 10 years later, We found ourselves on the steps of the Supreme Court when the court declared marriage the law of the land. And so, you know, I have seen firsthand, you know, the power that communications can have to change hearts and minds and to really advance what at the time, looking back, and and it was a really challenging environment to be talking about and advancing those issues and seeing, you know, essentially the the reversal and sort of the, the sweeping change that swept this nation. After that, I really felt like I needed to work on global issues and found my way to Conservation International to work on climate change, to work on protecting critical tropical forests, protecting our oceans, and equally challenging issues, particularly at this moment in time. But I'm I'm really thrilled to be able to lend some of the lessons that I've learned in terms of communications and the power that it can have to help shape debates and change hearts and minds to this challenging issue. Before we go down that really interesting road, you've used the phrase communication campaign a few times. Can you give us a bit of context or a bit of understanding of what a communication campaign is, particularly in the context of nature? Like, how do you, what is a communication campaign? How does a communication work, particularly when you're talking about a subject related to nature? Yeah, you know, Bob, I think one of the best examples we have is when I joined Conservation International, you know, there was just a really seminal study that had come up noting nature's contribution in the fight against climate change. And so I joined the organization and the seminal study about nature's role in climate change had just come out. And really the challenge was how do we you know, convince leaders, politicians, the climate movement that this has a role to play in addition to reducing our emissions and making it energy, you know, transformation to renewables was not even on the radar, to be quite honest. And this study was sort of the scientific backbone of that effort, which I think is absolutely critical to have either a policy component, you know, the scientific argument and rigor to help support a campaign. And so we and others engaged in really a communications effort to help raise the profile of nature as a solution, you know, 30% of the solution to help address, you know, climate change issues and to have that be part of the dialogue. So it was everywhere from, you know, the steps, San Francisco Climate Week and having really notable individuals speak to the issue and the power of nature to social media as a consistent thread to looking to pitch our scientists and others who served as validators, you know, both in terms of the research, but underpinning 
that scientific study to looking for other opportunities, both at events um, and in key inflection moments to help advance that message. And so I guess the way I'd say is a, a campaign, it's really an aggressive and protracted effort to help raise awareness around an issue and really insert it either into an existing debate or to create a moment or a debate to help advance that issue. And That is just one example of many of how really smart, targeted, and consistent messages can help shift, advance, you know, a topic that merits discussion. And now tell us a little bit about Conservation International. You're the first person from one of the really, really big NGOs that have a global reach that we've had on the podcast. Most of the the guests that we've had on before are you know, who work at NGOs are in, they're at organizations like Global Conservation Corps, where they're, you know, focusing on, you know, a specific ecosystem or a specific set of communities. Conservation International is a global NGO. You have not only offices all over the world, but you have people in the field all over the world. Tell us a little bit about Conservation International and frankly, how you coordinate all this work for nature at a global level. Well, you know, it's a fantastic organization and, uh, you know, we're fortunate to partner with many of the local organizations around the world as well. We, as an organization, work exclusively in the Global South. We have offices all over, but we work exclusively in the Global South, both directly through our team members and offices in more than 30 countries and largely through partners. Bob, one of the most fantastic things about the organization is that at least 30% of our budget goes directly out into the field and through partner work. And I, I love that sort of ethos and culture about the organization. I think the organization absolutely recognizes that there is no way that any single NGO is going to be able to tackle these really challenging and global issues and appreciate and recognize the power of partnership. And that's something I'm, I'm, I'm really proud about the organization and really applaud the organization for that. We have a guiding principles that we call our Southern Cross. And it's essentially like it's our organizational navigational tool that said, essentially, what are our key priorities? And the way we define that is looking at the global need. So whether it's climate or oceans or sustainability, what's the global need? Recently, for example, codified a 30 by 30, you know, what is the global need, which is 30% protection of the oceans? And what's our contribution? What could our, as a single NGO, what could our contribution be to that? And really, honestly, Bob, like just kind of groundbreaking that it wasn't necessarily our priorities are defined, but defined by sort of what was necessary externally. And those are, is our navigational chart for how we pursue the work and, and how we measure ourselves year over year and how we sort of keep the organization with all of these people and all of these partnerships really directed and focused on the tasks at hand. So in the, in the mission statement, Conservation International says that the organization, quote, empowers society to responsibly and sustainably care for nature, our global biodiversity, and the well-being of humanity. So explain to us the connection between those three concepts, nature, biodiversity, and human health. In in other words, why is our health as humans so closely linked to that of nature? 
our founder, Peter Seligman, was just a man ahead of his time. I mean, he really recognized the connection between nature and people. You know, it was his creative brain that's, you know, people don't, you know, nature doesn't need people. People need nature is the tagline, sort of a mission statement simplified, but really clear that, you know, nature will continue without humanity, but humanity is really dependent on it. And I think, you know, what he recognized early on was really the intersectionality of these issues that you can't have clean air without obviously reducing pollution, but the role that nature has to play, the role that trees have to play, or the power of the climate and these critical areas like the Amazon to sort of regulate the climate or, you know, the power of a healthy ocean. I mean, we all need a healthy ocean, both for, from a climate perspective, but also from a food security perspective. And I think humans have a lot of hubris and they don't always see the connection that the destruction of nature, the destruction of the planet has on their own health or, you know, their kids or from asthma to all sorts of other health-related issues, that it really is, you know, there's an intersection there. And Conservation International was one of the first organizations to really recognize that intersectionality. And just ahead of its time, but really we take all of those roles of protecting nature, which we know is interrelated with biodiversity, which we know has an effect on people, both people on the front lines, the communities that live closest to us, but also us that are further removed. But there is a there's a chain reaction. You know, one of the most interesting things I think we did probably two years ago is that our scientists mapped the carbon essentially around the world that we can't afford to lose, that the carbon in place, whether it's tropical forests, peatlands, et cetera, that if it goes, <laughs> the unscientific term, Bob, is that we're really screwed. But they overlaid that with some of the biodiversity maps. And those critical carbon areas are the same areas, large part, that are critical for biodiversity. And so the link of dependence is just increasingly clear. And I think it's communicators' jobs to help bring that link, you know, that sort of link to the fore. And that's something that we try to do at, at Conservation International. So maybe just build on that very last point a bit. Explain to us a bit more about how your role as essentially the chief communicator for CI helps kind of facilitate and foster those types of conversations? Like what, what do you do day in, day out to communicate the value of nature to, to people? So one of the, the great things about the organization is that there is a real willingness to go and try. So we, you know, we do a lot of experimenting in communications. We're just out there. Does this message resonate? Does, you know, this platform resonate? Does this speaking engagement, does it resonate? And so we're out there sort of constantly testing, right? Message testing is, is, is really what it is. But we really try to push forward, whether it's through a partner and the power of partnership and using their platforms, whether it's like high level events, whether it's sort of, we have a very active TikTok and just trying to sort of calibrate towards the audiences, but help advance those messages. And we use either key moments, key inflection moments, existing debates, which I think is really 
something I learned at the Human Rights Campaign is, you know, there are lots of conversations going on out there in the world. How do you help your organization have a point of view to insert your perspective into that debate, whether through a press statement, whether through an op-ed, whether through, you know, just a, a short social statement. I mean, we really try to use these externally driven moments to help galvanize. But then we use existing, you know, our own platforms and the platforms of others to help sort of build some of that content. Bob, one of the things I'd, I'd love to share, if I may, for a moment, is that having the science right, having the message right, critical, absolutely critical. But experimentation is also really key. And a couple of years ago, I did a film in Colombia and the team wanted to do something about like local communities and mangroves. You know, mangroves are really critically important for us to protect because of, you know, the protection they provide to local communities from storm surges to protecting, you know, the carbon that exists in their deep root system. They're not like really a beautiful ecosystem. In fact, they're kind of like buggy and dense and rooty and, you know, not like, you know, beautiful tree. Um, I, I, I will say I'm a mangrove fan though. Oh, I'm, you are? I'm, okay. I'm a firm believer that for all the things Bob, you I said, can... mangroves are probably the so if there's one thing we we could and should protect immediately, it's it's mangroves. So you know, Bob, you know the power of the, I, the power of the mangrove, right? Yep, I know the. I appreciate the power of the mangrove. I appreciate that you appreciate mangroves because <laughs> they're not like the most beautiful ecosystem. Like they're beautiful in their own right, right? Right. Um, yep. But really, a powerful ecosystem. So the team wanted to do something, and I just. I, you know, in talking with them and they wanted to weave in the community, but we didn't want to do a traditional story, right? Or like a public service announcement that's like mangroves are important because they store 10 times the carbon, et cetera. And what we did instead, and this was, you know, kudos to the organization for giving us like an opportunity to test something, but we did a story about a little girl who was learning how to swim in one of these local communities. And her mom needed her to learn how to swim because the sea level was rising. They lived right on the edge, right in the mangroves. And she knew like it was a matter of survival. And the story had the mangroves essentially as like the scenery or the supporting character. But the story was really about a mom's love for her child. And I think, you know, what we need to do as communicators is not just communicate the facts, but communicate sort of our human connection. And I think as a parent myself, you know, the love that you have of your child is something that's universal and or the love of a parent. And I think, you know, those universal themes are frankly kind of where the environmental community has been missing it. And I think the more we calibrate to messages based on science that are factual and correct, but that really have that power of the human connection, whether it's love of family, whether it's, you know, love of place, but that kind of like connection can really change hearts and minds. And so this little film that we kind of just did as a test, like went on to like win huge accolades, not because that was our goal, but it really resonated with people. And I think the more we can do that, 
the better and easier it'll be to communicate. And so it's just sort of a plea to people listening on this podcast to really think about, you know, changing hearts and minds doesn't actually start with the brain. It starts with the heart. And the more we do that, I think the more resonant our messages can be. Do you think that, I'll just say the the general public, not going beyond those many of whom listen to this podcast, the people who just are predisposed to loving and caring for nature, but just the masses, Mm -hmm. are they more and more predisposed to hearing and not only hearing these messages and these stories, but then taking action? Or are we still at this phase of just trying to to engage them so they give like a second listen to nature and then they can think about doing something for nature? So, you know, Bob, when I started working at Greenpeace, we were still debating whether or not climate change was a thing right? So we've come a long way. And I know that like, it's not as fast. The progress hasn't been as immense, but like a considerable amount of the way there's more work to be done. The thing that I've learned over the years and sort of seeing a sea change in progress, at least in the United States on a particular topic is that change is absolutely possible. Now, just because you legislate something, just because you create a bill, just because, you know, you have partner that agrees doesn't mean that the work is done. It has to continue. But I do think that the general public has come a long way. I think the awareness on issues has come a long way. I think changing habits and changing systems, it takes time. And I think that there is a lot more work to be done. But if you look at, you know, even polling some of the most challenging places, you'll see, you know, a receptivity to really key messages. It's our job, I think, as NGOs to really sort of find ways that resonate and to have people take action, to make changes in their daily life, to call on, you know, systems change. And I think we all just need to, you know, be doing more of that as the urgency of the crisis continues. You use the phrase systems change a number of times there. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that the only way we we solve all these challenges we've been talking about, namely climate change and all the impacts from it, is by fundamentally changing how we as a society operate. Yes. I worry that we are not accelerating or moving towards fundamental shifts in how we operate quickly enough. I mean, if you, you know, if you follow any company, almost any social media post from any company, you would, you know, you'd think that they're you know, on the front lines of changing all things nature, but it's really too often business as usual. And certainly there's some companies that truly are leading, but how do you, and how does Conservation International kind of push all of us, be as individuals or organizations to do more, to go beyond and to not think about incremental change, but rather the systems change that you talk about. Yeah. So I think one of the ways that we try to do that, and then I want to hear from you, Bob, on this, because you wrote a book. So I love your perspective. But one of the ways that we try to do that is to create pilots or programs that essentially try to test 
that idea. So our blue carbon work in Colombia, like, could we set up a community-run blue, high-quality blue carbon project where the majority of those funds are going back to the community, where the community is making the decision about um, the carbon and the project and who to sell to, where it's really protecting a critical ecosystem and it's benefiting the community? Could we create that? And then could we use that as a replicable model for others to do? And so I think the power of system change is recognizing, you know, taking the risk, like, can you try something? And then proving that it can be done and creating that model by leadership of being able to do that. I think by and large, it's not happening at the pace and scale that I think we would all like to see, whether that's governments, corporations, individuals, et cetera. Like we need more and faster. That's my scientific term, more and faster for today. But I think in this work, it can't just be aspirational. It has to be proven. And I think that's one of the things I love about the organization is this ability to really prototype that. I'm going to turn it to you, Bob, because you are more of an expert on this and get your thoughts on systems change. I would agree with you, critical and necessary. Wow, I'm uh, I'm flattered. This is one of the few times the table has been turned on me in (laughs) this podcast. So the premise of my book, which is called Transformative Markets, is that the only way that we can achieve this, the systems change, you know, again, you know, the really, really deep-rooted fundamental improvements to how, you know, the economy and society work is by cross-sector collaboration. And that's very much what you were just talking about in terms of, you know, many of these partnerships that CI has in place with governments and corporations and so on. And when it, when there is that cross-sector collaboration, then, you know, a great example is, you know, wind power in Texas. And now I think we're seeing it with electric vehicles. You have, you know, the government setting some policies, creating frameworks that allow investors to come in. You have companies innovating and you have private sector using its its power across the economy to, to expand the reach of those markets. When that happens, it can be really powerful. But that level of collaboration right now is not happening quickly enough or at a big enough scale to make it happen. And I think the only way to, to make it happen is really what you talked about is you know, really forging, putting a focus and a premium on forging those bonds of collaboration and partnership to scale the ideas because CI or any organization acting by itself can't, cannot affect fundamental change. It's only through all the actors in the economy or in a specific market working together because each one brings in a specific set of resources or skills. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And for those listening, go read Bob's book to learn about systems change. I think that's fantastic. It's exactly right. But I guess the systems change, in a way, we were just talking about systems change at a macro level, right? We were talking about multinational corporations changing how they operate, working with, you know, national governments. But in a way, you could argue none of this would happen unless we as individuals demand that it happen and we we make our voices heard either through electoral politics or purchasing decisions, whatever. How do you as a communicator move people from just being aware that there's a problem out there to actually taking action on behalf of society to solve the problem? 
Yeah, I think it's a graduated scale, right? For any sort of ladder of engagement, if you will. I think it's one sort of understanding the problem, feeling like you have agency to make a difference. This is why, you know, I think that in the United States, the IRA is so powerful in that, you know, in addition to- That's the the investment or the, I'm sorry, the Inflation Reduction Act and those are the the energy and and pro-climate provisions in that bill. Yes. Thank you. I was shorthanding it, but really it allows people to, that are able to make purchasing decisions that are better for the planet. So whether that's an electric vehicle with significant tax rebates to winterizing your home more efficiently, whole slew of energy efficient components that incentivizes Americans to do that. And there are, you know, a whole host of other legislation and in Europe and elsewhere that sort of, you know, also has different sort of incentives or proposed incentives. And I think, I think that's important. I absolutely, I think, especially on the topic of climate, when you start from a fear based place that there is no hope, it can be really you know, demoralizing and destabilizing. So I think you do have to give people agency in ways that they feel like they can be helpful. I think that you have to create community. You know, I think most people and globally are motivated by wanting to do the right thing, but also very influenced by their community and community of peers. We certainly see the research on that bear out, particularly in social media and the power that that has. So leveraging tools like that is really critical to help create change. And then I think it is communicating success. And that is that can be hard on any of the issues that I worked on, that that can be hard to find success, but you have to feel like you are able to make a difference and, you know, that that you're quote unquote winning to feel like there's momentum. Sometimes that's easier because the wind is at your back, but other times it's really hard. And I think, you know, looking for those silver linings is actually what inspires people. And so the doom and gloom is maybe necessary in some contexts, but really what motivates people is to have, you know, some hope and some hope for the future. And one of our, the key values at Conservation International is optimism. And, you know, Bob, you know, the work is hard and the headlines are hard and it can be hard to be optimistic, but fundamentally we have to feel hopeful and people have to feel hopeful that there is a future for them and for their children and their grandchildren. And then there is success and there are successes and it's our job as communicators to make sure people hear about that. So let's put a fine point on, on all of this, right? We've, we've kind of talked in general terms about you know, affecting change and inspiring people. Like, give us a, an example of a really cool, innovative project at CI that kind of brings together partnerships. It's working with a community or in a community. It's got a cool communications aspect to it. And you see it as having a potential to really affect the system and how we operate as a society. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot. Some of our work in Indonesia and South Africa, certainly in the Amazon. I'll give you um, maybe two if I could. So, you know, we are working in the Amazon with indigenous women to help coach, support, train, you know, both to help 
on real day-to-day issues such as land tenure all the way to like how do you negotiate at the UN. And the focus on women is incredibly intentional because women in many communities, you know, are, are, are real decision makers and the backbone of a community. And I, I just love that work because I find it so inspiring, you know, to be a champion for other women. And I think that is a real change to be able, you know, to see them, these international forums and really advocating for their families and their communities and their land. And that is, I think, a really incredibly powerful and something that I'm just personally, you know, passionate about and I'm really proud of that program. We have other fantastic work that we're doing, MasterCard on restoration with the government of Indonesia around production and protection to grasslands in South Africa. And I, I think one of the things, Bob, you know, that I would say, and I'm sure your other guests have said, is that what gives me hope and what gets me excited is the you know when we have the opportunity to see this work firsthand you're seeing just you know not just the beauty the immense and powerful beauty of these places but really the the people that are affected and the change that's possible and that just gives me a lot of energy and optimism for and renewed sense of optimism for the work ahead I really, I feel your, your energy and your passion coming through. So take us into that, like that one moment that you had in nature that gives you the most energy and passion. Like when you close your eyes, like what is that one moment in nature that you'll treasure more than any other? So I would say it's more of a consistent moment. So I have a dog and I'm the walker. And so I am up pretty early to take her out. And often it's just she and I walking. I'm fortunate to live near the woods and surrounded by trees, but we often see the sunrise. And there is nothing so spectacular or unique as a daily sunrise. And every day we sort of stop and pause and take it in. And I'm just like, you're just sort of reminded about the consistency of nature, like the beauty up. You'll not like you can know artists can replicate the colors that you see in that sunrise or just the power of, you know, that moment. And I just, I think it's a grounding place for me in the mornings to just reset and, and appreciate. Like I'm just in awe of nature. And I think those kind of daily moments of appreciating what's around you, like it really does renew me you know, seeing the work on the ground, there's no substitute for that. But that sort of, you know, consistent appreciation is just, I try to do it every day. And so how can listeners of the podcast, even if, you know, they're not a, a scientist at a, at a big organization or working in the field somewhere, like, how can we take action every day to make sure that the next generation in, enjoys those sunsets and those sunrises? And, has a few moments to spend in nature no matter where they are. Yeah. So lots of ways. I would say, first of all, you know, follow trusted scientists, follow trusted leaders, follow trusted organizations to get your news and information from those sources. I think that's absolutely critical to follow podcasts like this that can help point you in the direction of those individuals, organizations to educate yourself. So that's the first step. 
The second is to really look to reduce your consumption when you're when you can. And you know, I think we're we're well beyond sort of the stage of like changing your light bulb or bringing it back. Those are important, absolutely. But helping to reduce your consumption, helping to compost, helping to reduce your food waste, helping to eat less meat, all absolutely critical. Using your voice to participate, whether it's in your local community or at the country level, you know, sort of being an advocate for nature, I think is critical and sort of adding your voice to the chorus of many is important. Being thoughtful about your purchasing decisions and, you know, who you want to give money to and and support that you think are doing good things and those that you don't. I think the power of the pocketbook is, is powerful. And I think most importantly, helping to be, you know, a voice for nature and sort of all of those ways and sort of viewing yourself as an advocate. Maybe you don't like that term, but I think, you know, looking for opportunities to make small decisions, but also use your voice. I think that's how we get to systems change and how we get to scale is the collective power that we have that just needs to be harnessed and directed. And I'm going to ask you one last question, and I sense it might build upon the answer you just gave or the tail end of that answer, which is the challenges facing nature are countless. It feels like they kind of stare us in the face every day. Yet, you know, progress is being made. There are reasons to be hopeful. So why are you, in light of all these challenges, hopeful that we can foster a better, healthier nature for all of us? I have been fortunate, you know, over the course of my career to see that change is possible. I mean, I have directly witnessed people changing their minds and coming to terms. I mean, I have seen it. And so I fundamentally know and believe that it is possible on the issues of nature. I have also been fortunate to meet so many people countless, honestly, that are passionate about this. And so I know that my organization, myself, are not alone in this and wanting to create a better world. And I think that that continues to give me inspiration and hope and seeing the work that's happening in some of the hardest places to work and seeing the power and resilience of those individuals. I mean, you can't help but be inspired by people's relentless ability to hope and to create change for themselves and their families. And I think I've seen it enough to really believe it. And I'm not saying that the days aren't hard. They are. But it sustains me when I have those experiences. And I I think if you haven't experienced that, come, come follow us on Conservation International because we really do try to lift that up because that hope and optimism is what's fundamentally necessary for all of us to to carry on. But I, I really have seen it. I know it to be true. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you're looking for inspiration and you're listening to this podcast, you know, follow, follow some of Conservation International social media channels because you will you will find a lot of inspiration. I think not just in the you know, in the imagery, but just in the in the stories that are told and the stories of the people that are told. And certainly that's what inspires me. I mean, this the amazing people I've interviewed in this podcast, that's what inspires me. And I know we're on the right side of history on all of this. Like I know that this is all going to make a difference. And that actually makes me feel really good a lot of days. So thank you, Anastasia, for your time. 
More importantly, thank you for all the wonderful work that you do. And I'm just so impressed with everything you're doing and, and so thrilled that you took some time to, to be with us today. And it's much appreciated. Bob, this was so fun. This was really my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And thank you for the good work you're doing to help um, spread hope and optimism. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.